Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. Happy New Year everyone! In this episode, I discuss the life and work of the artist, writer and occultist Ethel Colquhoun with Dr Amy Hale. Colquhoun is perhaps best known as a member of the Surrealist art movement in the 1930s and 40s, both in London and Paris, but she was also deeply interested in a variety of esoteric subjects and her art was part of a larger, long-term magical practice that encompassed a range of unusual projects, exploring the magical qualities of colour and shape as a means to engage with other worlds and dimensions. Amy is a scholar of esoteric and marginal cultures with a PhD in folklore and mythology from UCLA. She has written on a range of diverse topics including modern druidry, colour theory, the occult and extremist politics in modern paganism, to name a few. 2020 will see the publication of her biography of Ethel Colquhoun, Genius of the Fernlove Gully, a work 20 years in the making and something both very much worth the wait and timely. We had a really lovely chat and I think this is a great episode to kick off 2020 with. Enjoy! Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about Ethel Colquhoun today. I hope I got that name pronounced correctly. <laughs> you have, yes. So to start off with, just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to discover this artist and her amazing life. Sure, sure. It's been quite a journey that's actually gone on for almost two decades now. Um, Back in the late 90s, I was working in Cornwall. I was a lecturer at the Institute of Cornish Studies, which is a department um, of, I think, the Division of Humanities at University of Exeter. And I was working there. I'd done my doctoral dissertation or my doctoral thesis, if you're in the UK, on Cornwall and on various Celtic identities in Cornwall. And so I was looking at everything from Cornish ethno-nationalism to expressions of Celtic spiritual identities, paganism. Uh, And as a result of that, I was continuing that sort of research while working as a lecturer at the Institute. And I was, I had finished that and I was meeting with a friend of mine uh, Melissa Hardy, Dr. Melissa Hardy, who was the head of the West Cornwall Art Archive and another American. And uh, we were having lunch one day and she had asked me if I had known anything about Ethel Calhoun. And I had never heard of Ethel Calhoun. And she said, oh, she was, she was a druid and she was really into witchcraft and she was a surrealist and she lived up the road from here in Lamorna and you've got to find out about her. And I, I was amazed. I'd never heard of this woman. And given everything I'd been studying, I was kind of surprised that I hadn't. And then it turns out that she had written really one of the first early Earth Mysteries books on Cornwall in the 1950s. And so I was thinking, how on earth have I, have I missed her? So I went back to my department and I said, hey, uh, th- there's this really important figure that nobody seems to be looking at. And this was, I'd say, probably in about 2000. And I said, I I hear her stuff is up at the tank. Can I I go and have a look? And so they sent me up to London for a week. And at this point, 
none of her material had been cataloged and it was all just in boxes. And I sat up there at, at, at the, the Tate archives, which at that point was just, it was very small room and you go in and they hand you a pencil and they'd wheel some things out and they just wheeled out this huge palette of boxes and said, Hey, have a go. And I was just amazed. And so I started looking through it again. None of this material was cataloged and I found all of these incredible pieces of correspondence and graphs of pictures of archangels, which she was doing on graph paper and you know, all of this Kabbalistic stuff, this magical stuff. And I said, okay, this is, this is unbelievable. And so I was hoping to, uh, to get some uh, support to finish a book early on. But at that point she was not well known enough and, her archives were kind of in pieces and in several different locations. And for a whole bunch of reasons, it's really taken a good two decades to complete this work. Although I don't think it'll ever be completed, but I really found out about her through my love of Cornwall and through my background in esoteric research. Right. Okay. And so when you went up to London and engaged with the Tate to look at this information. How was Eithel's work treated? Was her interest in the occult, was that known? And, and when people talked about her, was that uh, included in, in descriptions of her and her work? Or was she seen very much as an artist first and those interests were sort of peripheral to her artistic output? Uh, yes, I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head there. Early on, if you could find anything about Eiffel Colquhoun at all, she was kind of cast as a the lost woman British surrealist. And you know, there are all sorts of problems with that characterization anyway. But she was mm. really almost seen as a footnote. Uh, her affiliation with the British, her formal affiliation with the British surrealists uh, only really lasted a few years. People Now, people in the occult scene knew of her because mm. of her 1975 book, Sword of Wisdom, which was a book about the Golden Dawn. It's been cast as a biography of uh, Samuel McGregor Mathers, but I, I see it as kind of a wider project than that. Uh, so she was known throughout the occult community, but people in the art history world were seeing her more as a surrealist. They knew that she had occult interests because that was, you know, we'll probably get to this later, part of the issue around her relationship with her formal relationship with the surrealists. It wasn't something that was, I think, particularly marginalized. I just don't think it was a focus of what art historians were looking at when they were looking at her work, say 20, 25 years ago. Uh, I think that the climate now is remarkably different for how we look at the intersection of esotericism and the arts and the impact of it, not just in terms of symbol, but in terms of actual practice. And I think one of the reasons why we're talking about Eiffel Colquhoun right now, in addition to reconsidering works, uh, artists like Leonore Carrington um, and a whole range of others is just because the, the landscape of art criticism and art history is changing. Right. Okay. Because um, I, I read your paper, The Magical Life of Eithel Colquhoun, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It's excellent. So oh, 
I guess I thought it seems that I thought from a very early age was interested in both of these areas, art and magic. Do you think that there was one that she was interested in more than the other, or is it just that these were two equal interests that she knew were connected in a way? That's that's a, a great question. And I think that my my argument is that for her, her art was always in service to her spirituality mm. and her her magic. Now she was an artist, a visual artist from a very early age. Uh, you see, we see some really beautiful, delicate pieces from her teenage years. You know, fairies and and kind of wistful girls on cliffs. So she had that sensibility uh, and those talents very early on. I think it's also worth noting that uh, she had a very unconventional childhood. Mm. She didn't learn how to read until she was about eight or nine, and she didn't have any formal education for uh, for many, many years. She was educated by tutors and nannies. But her mother really kind of took this, this approach where she didn't want her mind to be too hemmed in by, by words. So she actually had a, I think it's one of the, the, the things that contributed to her visual understanding of the world is that she was kind of, she was seeing things through and interpreting things through that lens rather than the written word because she started to read quite late. Although she picked up on it really well. I mean, she was obviously an amazingly brilliant, brilliant person. But I think as as time goes on, as we see her intersecting with esoteric and occult ideas, those end up, I think, being predominant in terms of her uh, her artistic expression. And when she finally does come to surrealism in the 1930s, it's because it supports the occultism that she's already very, very engaged with. Right, okay. Because I, I know that in the late 1920s, she did some artwork. She did a, a version of a painting called Judith with the Head of Holofernes. Yes, yes. Which I, I've seen, and it's it's, <laughs> it's quite different from the original. I mean, the original is a, it's a, it's an incredibly dramatic scene. When you see it, you you know what I mean. That's to the listeners, sorry, not you. <laughs> so, I mean, at this point, kind of just prior to her becoming a, sort of formally affiliated with the Surrealist movement, how do you think her art kind of reflected her interest in magic? You talk as well about her work involving themes like sex and, and gender. Can you just talk a little bit about that time period and... And, and what that sort of imagery represented in terms of her art connecting to her deeper interest in magic. Sure. It's, uh, we get quite an interesting progression in where she was uh, and the kind of work that she was doing from 1929, which is when she did the uh, that, that particular Judith painting as part of her studies at the slave, and 1939, which is where she's actually... Uh, deeply engaged with British surrealist culture. So in, when she was doing, when she did the, uh, the, the Judith painting, she was still at the slave. And I think a lot of her works at that point were pretty much what you would expect from a student in art school. There were a number of different 
historical versions of that particular scene. And she did a lot of things that were biblically based. She had one on the Song of Solomon, which is fantastic. If you can find it online, uh, Isaac Goldwyn's Song of Solomon is super fun. Uh, but she did a lot of mythological themes, a lot of biblical themes, because those were were kind of, uh, I would say, level-setting themes for students at, at, at an art school during that time. But yes, you're right. Her, her version of that is very different. You've kind of got this very triumphant woman holding up this head, walking into this scene, and it's, it's quite magnificent. Again, that can be found online as well. Uh, but as, she starts, as she, she starts leaving that type of work, in the mid-30s, when we, what we see is a transition. Uh, we see, it's, so it's not necessarily engaging specifically with these very structured ideas that we find in, in, uh, in Hermeticism and in occult traditions. We really see in the 1930s a focus in her artwork on botanical studies. She does these very detailed, very lovely images of, of flowers and moving into uh, would have been you know, considered some rather exotic flowers that she would have found in, say, Kew Gardens. Hmm. And those images then start getting sexier and sexier. So we get from flowers, I mean, you know, the stuff that she was doing in her botanical things in you know, the late 30s and early 40s, you know, kind of uh, uh, puts Georgia O'Keeffe to shame, really, in a lot of ways. And... <laughs> So, yeah, we start seeing this, this intersection through her interest in botanical works, first with, with surrealism. And, you know, obviously a lot of, of uh, the, like, for instance, Dolly's surrealism, which is very heavy on not just what we would consider dream imagery, but also kind of Freudian imagery and the, the sexuality in, in some of Dolly's work. We see that mirrored in some of Colquhoun's earlier surrealist works where we're getting things from the plant kingdom that are becoming more and more sexual and more aligned with uh, wider images that we might find coming from uh, mythology. So this is where we start seeing kind of the intersection between esoteric ideas and Colquhoun's surrealism is the way that she was taking the plant kingdom and using it to express what she would have considered wider mythic and archetypal themes. And in the late 30s, these were mostly having to do with dying and resurrected figures, but also goddess figures in the landscape. Although I would say goddess figures are probably, might be ahistorical. I'm not necessarily convinced that that's what she was trying to do, although she was very interested in the divine feminine. So we might see, say, for instance, a very... Um, explicit looking flower or a, a tree that was looking like uh, you know, quite vulvic. So mm. we start seeing these intersections with her surrealism and her uh, wider interest in archetypal themes in the late 30s. But then she also starts, you know, we see her doing images that are also more uh, capitalistically based. We see her starting to work with alchemy. She was working with alchemical themes much earlier than this. We see her starting to work with alchemical themes as early as the late 20s. Uh, she also did some murals at school, which were using tarot imagery. But her real body of, I think, explicit 
work that we see, uh, visual work using alchemical themes, starts coming in about 39. 1939. A lot of that was actually probably not produced for any kind of public display. So, with her with her art, in terms of her practicing magic and her interest in the occult and her art, is she relatively self-taught? Uh, well, she had very formal arts training. I right, think of course. for a woman at the in the early 20th century, she uh, prior to the Slade, which of course is yeah, the is the premier uh, or one of the premier art schools in in Britain. Hmm. She had formal training there. Prior to that, she was at uh, it, it was Cheltenham Art School or I think Cheltenham School of Art and Technology. Now, uh, so she had training as an even younger woman, you know, as as a late teen. Uh, she had art training there as well. So she actually was very, very schooled in yeah. art history, art design, principles of design, also principles of architecture, murals, color theory, geometry. She had all of that. Uh, in terms of her occult interests, I think uh, self-taught, I think to the degree that most people were Yes, she was a part of uh, the Quest Society very early on when she was in the Slade, and she started engaging in occult community in London when she was when she was there. So this was it was an early interest, and I do think that she found a, a pretty, I would say, high level community of people in the Quest Society that she could interact with and bounce ideas off of and uh, get feedback. So I would say that she, while she was very independent, I think she certainly got a lot of uh, very good input from community in, in both areas. Right, yes. Uh, actually, I, I'm in, your, in your paper, the, the Magical Life of Ethel Colquhoun, I'm going to lift this from the paper if that's okay, because it's a really great question. <laughs> um, uh, you say a primary question would be the degree to which Colquhoun's interest in the occult and her use of occult symbols and techniques in her surrealism was similar to other surrealists and the ways in which it was different. I, I thought that was brilliant, I, and I, I had to, <laughs> I had to use that. I'm afraid. <laughs> oh no, no, that's great. Um, can we can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I think that this is something that we're starting to maybe understand a little bit more as we start to consider and think about what it means to be a practitioner. What does it mean hmm. to have an occult practice? So although I'm, I, I want to state I'm not an art historian, I approach this material as more an ethnographer and ethnohistorian. So there are a lot of details about, say, the life of Leonore Carrington or Max Ernst or any of the other surrealists uh, who might have used occult imagery. There are a lot of things about their own personal views on why they were doing that, that I cannot speak to. What we do see in Colquhoun is a very sustained commitment to esoteric practice. We see involvement in occult societies and occult orders. We see the development of a 
very coherent occult and esoteric worldview that would have been completely consistent with a lot of the perennialist occultists of the early and mid 20th centuries. And you know, this is something that is documented. We can see it. She wrote about it. We know what she was doing. I think with some of these other artists, there are two issues. One, we see that a lot of surrealists were using occult imagery because there was a particular fetishization of it. And I don't use that word in any pejorative sense. I, I think that a lot of the earlier surrealists saw this, saw the occult and things like tarot and alchemy as a way of tapping into something that was bigger or tapping into their own subconscious and that the occult offered tools for doing that. So you know, we may not see in any of these artists a evidence of a sustained and engaged practice in the same way. I don't want to say that what they were doing was meaningless. I also think that we're now finding out more about the practices, the esoteric practices and worldviews of artists like Leonore Harrington. And we're able to, I think, assess those in perhaps a more critical way than in the past, where perhaps art historians and others were kind of marginalizing or decentralizing the role of practice in favor of choosing to focus on symbol. Mm. And so I don't want to say that these other artists didn't have practices, that they didn't have uh, beliefs or experiences. I think what we see in Colhoun is probably likely something that was more sustained, systematic, and engaged than we have yet found with many of these other artists. Okay. I mean, do you think that perhaps the circles that Ithel was part of when it comes to her interest in the occult, do you think that the sort of the models that she was learning about were more in the, in the sort of right-hand path area of magic where there's knowledge there that's to be found and there's a sort of an order to things? Do you think, and so perhaps that the sense of achieving something through those processes is there's a bit more of a sort of a yeah there's more of a process to it because I it was interesting to read that um she fell out with the British Surrealist Society I, I I found it I chuckled to myself the idea of a surrealist society being kind of stuffy and having orders and and, and having things that you have to adhere to but it but also it sounds a little bit like the sort of right-hand path area of magic, which is very much about there's this sort of secret body of work that can be discovered, if you see what I mean. Do, do you think that the circles that she was part of artistically and in, in magic, do you think that they they had a similar framework, perhaps? I think they were actually very different. So one right. of the things, now again, I'm, I'm not an art historian, but one of the things that I found about uh, in, in looking at the history of surrealism, it's it was very it was very club like you know it was very um, mm. it there was a lot of interest in who was in who was out and who was following Breton and who was hanging out with whom and right yeah so so there was there was a lot of of that because in 
and again, this is just my observation as as a scholar outside of, of that. There, there's a there through that are ways that we can understand what surrealism was or what it was trying to do at given points in history. The reason that, but a lot of it, I think, still had this this kind of beautiful anarchy to it, and a mm. lot of surrealism it, it had. Um, guidelines, but there, there was certainly a lot of a lot of freedom of expression in that. I think that the reason that we see these particular kind of, you know, this, this push toward rules and and uh, regulations in that particular one meeting in 1940 that that where Colhoun had her, her pushback, and it wasn't just her, it was a number of people who were like, yeah, I don't think so, was because we have to remember the cultural context of when this is happening. This was in 1940. And so World War II was eating everything alive. And it mm -hmm. had a devastating impact on a lot of the art that was being produced during that time. It's one of the reasons why we don't see as many full-length novels being produced was because, frankly, there wasn't the paper to, to print it on. That These resources were going to other ends. And uh, Meeson's... Uh, Edouard Masons, who was the the kind of Belgian director who had come in to try to pull, uh, to, to deliver the resources, to try to pull surrealism together. He was, he was trying, I think, probably in a rather misguided and heavy-handed way, he was trying to keep British surrealism together. And it didn't really work. But at the time when this happened, all of the institutions of British surrealism had already collapsed. So I think mm. it's important to keep that in mind when we look at what that meeting was and what the impact of that was on Eiffel Colhoun's relationship with surrealism. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't it it, it it happened. All of this was going on during during a very particular time period. So I don't think that that it was similar in terms of the kinds of other things that you're talking about and this idea of initiated societies and hmm. um, you know the kind of gnosis that that one might find or that she perceived that she would find in belonging to initiated societies and she really starts on that quest about 10 years later anyway because the other thing that's important to remember about world war ii is that it had a huge impact on occult societies so there was no golden dawn around at that point there was no oto in in the UK at at that point, uh, not not really that that she would be joining. That was yeah you know, for other reasons, but it, it really took a huge toll on the, the way that people could come together to uh, to do occult types of work. So she really wasn't able to pick that up until about the nineteen fifties anyway. Right. Okay. I was I was wondering at, at this time um, in her career. Do we know what her magical work was sort of aimed towards? Was was her was her magical work mostly concentrated in her art, or was she doing other things outside of that? And if if she was doing that, was there an aim to it? Did she have a sort of a an idea of what she was trying to do with the work that she was doing, in, in terms of it as an as a magical working, perhaps? Sure. So you mean like around 1940 when she was leaving Surrealism? Around yeah. That time? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that time period was really, really fascinating in terms of what she was doing. So she was very likely 
working on her own, but she was you know, probably networking in a lot of ways with with other, you know, perhaps with other uh, other occultists. Although we don't see as much of that in her archives and in her correspondence around this time period, because around 1940, she is still very very involved in artistic community rather than occult community, which would have been a little bit hard for her at that point anyway. So that was really her, her social focus was in maintaining a, an artistic community of artists and writers. But privately, she was very engaged in doing, I think, a number of private magical workings, which were all about the generation of the divine hermaphrodite. And we see she's doing a lot of work on ideas of uh, energy, on sexuality, on uh, sacred sites. I actually think that the period between 1939 and 1942 is when she produces some of her most coherent and amazing magical pieces. So... During this time, we see her combining tantric and alchemical and Kabbalistic ideas to create a series of uh, very explicit sex magic pieces where she is trying to characterize the, uh, the basically the generation of the divine hermaphrodite. And what she was doing in this and what her focus was in, in this work, and we're talking... so. Let me just kind of go back a little bit. She does a series of pieces that were very explicit and could never have been displayed because they were they would have been considered pornographic. She did other ones that were more symbolic that would have been able to be displayed, but using some of the same themes of, of uh, I'm going to say, just to make it easy, male and female polarity mm. and the of male and female polarity, although she did have some, uh, there are some examples of this which were, uh, which were male to male and female to female as well. So we see a number of works that are using these these visual ideas of polarity, because Colquhoun believed, certainly during this point, that humanity was a mess, and again. World War II, humanity was a mess. And what we needed to do was basically get back to the garden. She believed that humans' divine state was genderless and that the the hermaphroditic state was the state that humans were in before the fall and that what we needed to do was balance the kind of masculine energy that was ruining the world uh, with an acknowledgement of the divine female and the divine feminine, and that there could be no societal uh, there, there could be no societal transformation without an actual union of, of male and female forces. And this was a huge part of her work. So we see this in how she was. Uh, in, in her writings at the time, in 1942, she wrote a piece called Waterstone of the Wise, 42 or 43, one of the two, 
which was about this, uh, her, her ideas was, was very symbolic, very, very, you know, very heavy with symbolism and metaphor, but basically saying that if, if we want to change things, then we need to get back to this state of, of the male and the female united in perfection. And this is, this is really what she was working toward. And she was visually, if you look at this, this time period, it's, it's wild because she's doing it's very intensively deep Kabbalistic work, uh, very deep alchemical work and, and with some Tantra thrown in. So it's a really, really rich period. It sounds incredible. Do you think that she finished that working? Was that realized? So here's, here's kind of a, a, a funny thing. So uh, we have in, in this set of work, as I said, we've got the work that could not have been shown or would have only been shown uh, privately. And then the, the series Diagrams of Love, which were a poetic sequence and a visual sequence, which contain a lot of the same theoretical material, yet it was uh, not as overtly erotic. We see a huge push toward creating this body of work, and then she gets married, hmm. and then it seems to stop. And her marriage did not go well. It was to uh, another surrealist, a rogue surrealist, and that did not go well. And I've kind of wondered what it was that was driving the incredible sexual energy of the work that she was doing of this body of sex magic pieces and then what happened do i think that she found resolution there no because after that point and in a lot of her work she starts becoming interested in themes of communities of priestesses communities of women ideas of parthenogenesis mm. and the idea that the the perfected woman contains both masculine and feminine and has the ability to reproduce asexually. Uh, so we start seeing those themes emerging in her work after this time period. So did she complete it? That's a really good question. I'm going to say probably not. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it must be, it's hard to imagine what it must've been like to go from doing something like that to 1940s married life it's those two things seem almost polar opposites and when when her, her magical work seems to be creating a union of opposites almost it, it's hard to imagine what it's like isn't it to go from to being a, a, a practicing magician to I, I guess like a, a housewife in the 1940s well she never really had a, a conventional life or a conventional marriage by any stretch of the imagination right one of the things that I try to uh, bring out in the the biography that I've done of her is that she wasn't wealthy, but she was comfortable enough to not have to give in to convention. So when she was married to Tony mm. Del Renzio, Tony Del Renzio was a an artist and surrealist, and she believed he was a complete con man. I'll let history decide that. Uh, but he was a a completely dashing, almost mythical figure himself. And he wanted to try to put surrealism back together and to reform it and to bring it to its orthodox Plutonian origins 
which she would have been completely on board with because she saw herself as a fully orthodox surrealist in the 1940s. And so when the two of them married, they were still very involved in art communities, in writing, in performance, and in, in, trying, to, uh, in trying to keep something going. So she wasn't exactly a 1940s housewife. She, she right. was still, she was still pretty funky and alternative because she was, you know, she was part of, of an artistic milieu. So I don't think, yeah. you know, that, that life, she, she resisted that from, from day one. She, she never would have, have found any of that to be very comfortable. Right. Okay. So I guess the next thing that happens in, in her life is when she moves to Cornwall. There seems to be a, like a little bit of a, not so much a divide, but you can sort of separate her life into before she moves to Cornwall and, and after. So what is it that takes her down to Cornwall? Well, she starts going to Cornwall. She, she might have gone as, as a child uh, once or twice. She starts visiting during the war when a lot of people were leaving London, obviously, to be uh, safe from, from the bombing. So we know that she, mm. she visits Cornwall because she starts doing uh, some uh, paintings of sacred sites in Cornwall long before she lives there in uh, the early 1940s. And she rents a home there in the late 40s in Lamorna, which was itself an artist colony. It was different from the artist colonies at either St. Ives or Newnham, but it was an artist colony. And so for a number of years, she goes back and forth between Cornwall and London. And there are a couple of things that, that draw her to Cornwall. First is the, uh, she is very interested in, in antiquities and in the idea of, of magical landscapes and in sacred sites. And Cornwall has those in a great abundance. And so she's very attracted to the sacred sites there. And you know, we see in the early 1940s that she's doing theorizing about sacred sites and megalithic monuments as other dimensional portals and places where, where people can, uh, can access energy points. And she's really ahead of the curve on that. So we see her doing that kind of theorizing around Cornish landscapes very early. The other thing is that she believed very strongly that she was a Celt and that her Celtic blood was, uh, was a huge determining factor in her artistic and also her occult abilities. And her Celtic identity was very important to her. And she wanted to go be with other Celtic peoples and so she went to Cornwall so that she could fully experience that. Of course, there were also, again, artistic communities there which would have been comfortable for her, even though her own work didn't fit with those artistic communities. She was still finding places where she could do art and be with other artists. Right, okay. And so was, it, was she doing more magical work or more artistic work or, or a bit of both? Or? Well, we see a, a bit of a drop in her artistic output mm. during the 1950s when she's in, in Cornwall. This is when we see her becoming a lot more interested and involved in, in uh, magical communities, in initiatory communities, but also in writing. 
you know, so she's she's a visual artist, but her written output was also really significant you know, between her poetry and her essays, uh, she and her novels and her short stories. She was a very prolific writer, and we start seeing more of that type of concentration when she's in Cornwall. So, and the other thing was that you know, she was she was in Cornwall really part-time until the late 1950s. So she goes back and forth for a decade. So Cornwall becomes, she even says in Living Stones, which was published in, in the late 50s, that she had never spent a full year there. So you know, she's really part-time until she moves to the village of Paul, which is outside Newland. And she is, she's, we see her more focused on uh, on her writing. Perhaps it's because the studio space there was small. Uh, she also had studio space in London. But yeah, we just see a, a kind of a shift in focus. And it's also at this point, you know, magical communities are now emerging. Again, we're seeing in post-World War II, in the 1950s, we're seeing a new flowering of, of groups. The OTO is coming back together. Uh, although that itself had, had was a little bit rocky. Uh, we see other Golden Dawn groups emerging, and that's when we start seeing her becoming a lot more involved in magical orders. I also think, frankly, that she started becoming more involved in magical orders, not just because she could, but I think that, that she found some solace in them after her disastrous marriage. At the beginning of, of this interview, you mentioned that your friend described Eithel uh, as a druid, and I'm guessing it's, it's this period in her life she got that association. Yes, she um, she starts becoming involved with druidry in the late 1950s, although she might have had an interest earlier than that. One of her friends was Ross Nichols, mm. who uh, was, uh, was a very, very influential 20th century druid. And she knew him from the writing and poetry scene. She had interest in Celtic orders and Celtic organizations uh, parallel to her, her interest in hermetic organizations. And sometimes they kind of crossed over. And you know, so she was, she was druid pretty much, I think, from 1958 to 1968. And she was involved in a number of other different Celtic orders and, and groups. And that was just for her one way that the uh, that the mysteries were revealed. You know, she really was a perennialist, and I think that she believed that that the initiatory order structure was was an important way of revealing these these mysteries. And that for her, having a home in you know, like being involved in the Celtic version of those, and she saw druidry as being very much a localized uh, ethnic expression of kind of the greater mysteries. And so, yeah, she's, she's very involved in, in a number of those orders as well. I think around this time, there was this idea of, the, of a sort of a survival of witchcraft from the deep past. And do you feel like I thought when she goes to visit Cornwall and then eventually lives there and identifies with having a Celtic heritage, do you think that with her druidry, she felt she had a direct connection to a to a sort of a past lineage of that of that sort of culture, or do you think it was more 
it was representative of that connection rather than being direct. I, I think she likely did feel that this would have been, um, if not necessarily a recreation or a continuation, that it held the mysteries in a way that were uh, that worked for her. Yeah. Now it's interesting you bring up uh, witchcraft. So uh, if you're talking about the Margaret Murray thesis of kind of the survival of the witch cult, so she was really into witchcraft. She had met Gerald Gardner on at least one occasion. She ran in his social circles. She believed that there was a uh, a continuing witch cult. She believed it. We can see it from her writings where she makes comments that that uh, she felt like there was some sort of, of continuation of practice. However, she, even though she was super interested in witchcraft and collected a lot of information about uh, witches in, and traditional healers in Cornwall and elsewhere, she never became a witch. She never identified as a witch or a Wiccan, uh, which is something that I've always found very interesting. I tend to believe that it was because she was, even if she believed that that existed, that it was not, the end game was different. You know, for her, she really wanted this kind of initiatory enlightenment. Uh, I think you, you know, earlier you were mentioning the idea of right-hand path. And uh, even though that term itself is kind of, you know, something that's sort of contested in, in magical communities, I hmm. do think that she was definitely into uh, what we would have considered uh, theurgy and that she was probably less into ecstatic rituals. She was probably into things that were a lot more... Um, I don't know if she did ritual at all. It was probably a lot more performative. And by which I mean uh, more ceremonial than, than ecstatic. And so she never became a witch, even though she was really interested in it, really conversant in it. She was good buddies with, um, with Cecil Williamson, who started the Museum of Witchcraft, the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic. And mm. they were, they were, you know, they corresponded quite a bit for quite some time. And, but yet that was never her path. Right. One thing that I, I really wanted to talk about was, and you, you mentioned it uh, briefly not long ago, was Ithel's work with color and with shape. And you, you mentioned that she conceived of some of these sites in Cornwall as being portals to other places and and I know that color was very important in in her workings and and shape as well particularly the concept of shape in a in a sort of a fourth dimensional sense can you talk about those areas a little bit sure sure uh, <laughs> you know it's one of the challenges I have to say in in writing this biography is that all of these ideas overlap for her historically. And she will take an idea such as working with color or working with the fourth dimension. And she'll, we'll see an instance of it in 
1940, and then we'll see another one in 1978, right? And then we can see mm. stuff right in the middle. So in looking at, it's hard to tell, it's hard to talk about this in terms of a single linear narrative because in her own life, they get so woven into her own story and whatever she was doing at any given moment. But it, in terms of, I, I actually think that we, hmm. so she starts becoming interested in the Golden Dawn in particular in the 1930s when she encounters her cousin, Edward Garston, who was the cancellarius of the Alpha Omega Lodge in, in London. And as you may or may not be aware, the Golden Dawn is really responsible for the colors that we have now on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. There's a lot of color theory that goes into the Golden Dawn and Golden Dawn ritual. Uh, they were very interested in what's called simultaneous contrast or magically known as flashing colors, where you put two colors opposite each other on the color wheel together and they create a, a vibratory effect. They create, you know, in some cases, retinal burn. So you can see if you stare at two, two simultaneous contrast colors, you, you'll kind of see the after image in your mind. Uh, Van Gogh also used simultaneous contrast quite a bit in his work in, in the late 1800s. So obviously, uh, the, the people who uh, Florence Farr and Mina Mathers were trained artists and they knew color theory. And Eiffel Calhoun knew color theory. And she was very attracted to the, these ideas in the Golden Dawn because for the Golden Dawn, colors weren't just colors. Colors were forces. They were, they called them the signatures of forces. So when you're looking at a color, you're not just seeing something that symbolizes something else. You're seeing something that is a gateway to another dimension. You might be seeing the trace of a being from another dimension. And this for her was very potent. And this became a large feature of her work, I would say, from the late 30s onward, where we see throughout her life a focus on colors that are linked to, to the Kabbalah mostly and Kabbalistic precepts. So this is something that runs throughout her work. Now, also, of course, she was interested in platonic solids as uh, were you know, many magicians and magical artists. And she starts experimenting with tesseracts in the fourth dimension. Now, the tesseract is seen as the, basically it is a, two-dimensional representation of fourth-dimensional space. And she starts drawing tesseracts and conceiving of sacred sites as fourth-dimensional portals in as early as 1940, 1941. And so all of these things are combined in her art throughout her life. She comes back to them, I think, really uh, some of the height of some of this when combined with her surrealist practice is as a much older artist in the late 70s when she does the deck out of intelligence in 1978-79 and her tarot deck in 1977 which incorporates 
all of these themes together. We see her using the automatic processes that she was so drawn to in surrealism in the late 40s and then throughout the rest of her life. We see this combined with uh, the, the intensity of using uh, pure enamel color in Kabbalistic frameworks and then possibly using tarot and uh, Kabbalistic principles and her representations of the various, uh, the Sephiroth as ways for the individual to meditate and to access these other dimensions. And she just, she works at these throughout her life and they become cornerstones of, of her art really for most of her life. Hmm. So is that how those other places would be accessed? It's not so much a physical thing as a, as a mental process that you, you would go there using your mind rather than, I'm, I'm just imagining a stone circle with like a literal portal. Was there that aspect to it as well? Could, could these places be literally portals as well as ones that have on a more magical sense? Well, I, I'm not sure she would have felt that, that uh, by standing in the middle of one of like a stone circle that you would become, um, <laughs> that you would lose your, your corporeal existence. Right. But she believed that they were built on sites of energy. Hmm. And, you know, so this was actually, you know, this was, I wouldn't say that this was common in the 1930s, although we see it in the work of, of Dion Fortune, where she starts talking about uh, kind of very early on ideas of sacred sites as being uh, energy portals, as being located on sites in the earth, which were either connected, like I believe, to uh, currents of electromagnetic energy, or just sites that were particularly sensitive, that people who were in touch with esoteric currents would be building on successively. So this was something that was already starting to be discussed in the esoteric imagination in the 1930s. And so we see Eiffel picking up on these themes in the late 1930s, early 1940s. But what she's doing is she is connecting them with ideas of the fourth dimension that were becoming more common in both art and esoteric circles at that time. So there were ideas about space and extra dimensional spaces that were happening in both of these communities in, in the late 1930s. Mm. And she was in, in pieces that uh, sometimes only exist in sketches, but that at least give us some idea of what she was thinking about. She's sort of blending these two ideas of sensitive points in the landscape, which become suitable points for uh, megalithic monuments, blending that and saying, hey, well, if that's going on, maybe it's actually a portal to this other thing hmm. and a space where we can access this, this extra dimensionality which is going on around us all the time, but this might be an extra good space to do it, especially if you're there at certain times of the year. And so she was combining, she was really combining a whole lot of ideas in 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 her theorizing about about sacred sites. Right. And I'm I'm guessing those places as well could be inhabited by entities. Very likely, or places where you can communicate them, uh, you know, absolutely. 
uh, again, it's it's so frustrating because she did two amazing pieces on on this idea in in the early 1940s. Uh, the Sunset Birth, which is a piece about the Menatol Stone Circle, well, it's not Stone Circle, it's a stone monument in West Cornwall, where she portrays this monument as having an impact on uh, on the human form and energy lines. Uh, and channels in the human body. So we've got that, and then we've got another one called Dance of the Nine Opals, where she, Dance of the Nine Opals, really is, I think, the most theoretically sophisticated of her ideas about how ancient monuments really work. But we have these two pieces, we've got some sketches, and we can see where she's going with it, but it never gets as fully realized as a, a theoretical avenue as I would like to see. It ends up being just very, very tantalizing. Hmm. I'd have loved to know what she thought about things like UFOs and, and cryptids in, in terms of extra dimensionality and explanations for things like Bigfoot or lake monsters. And it would be fascinating to know her, her ideas about, about those from that perspective. She, that, that would be, she did do some writing about UFOs in, I think, the 1950s or 1960s. It wasn't a huge part of her corpus. Uh, and I'm trying to remember what that essay was mm. about. It was a short one. But she did certainly engage with those ideas, absolutely. And she engaged with, with the wider Fordian world as well. Cool. I, I think... Her and someone like Jack Vallée would have had an amazing conversation about this sort of thing. <laughs> oh, oh, I have no doubt. There are so many places where I would have loved to see how she would have engaged with people and wanted to be a fly on the wall with the uh, with her her mind and her reading and her engagement was extraordinary. It really was extraordinary. And it, I, I, for her, a, a big avenue for this, this sort of material was actually through dreams and dream spaces, which she, like many others, believed were either prophetic or were taking you to another dimension or which had the ability to take you to another dimension. So a lot of dimensionality uh, ideas were actually expressed in her, uh, in, in her ideas about dreams and dreaming. And her ideas about dreams actually were uh, underpinned a lot of both her writing and her painting in the 1950s and 1960s. Most of her work, well, actually her earlier work as well, Goose of Hermogenes, which came out in 1961, but was it, she started writing that 30 years later. A lot of her work was actually inspired by her dreams, which she believed were, were other spaces. They were actually other spaces. They weren't just her mind. Mm. No, I, I love that idea, definitely. It seems to be she had a lot of ideas which are now not so much coming back, but you hear that they're, they're talked about more often in, in these kind of 14 circles. There seems to be a bit of a paradigm shift in, in understanding the, the unexplained and the paranormal and these ideas that, that I thought was talking about and involved with. Uh, it looks like they're sort of coming back a little bit, which is great. And she was really ahead of her time, clearly. She was absolutely ahead of her time. 
And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited that that the time is now, I think, a little bit more friendly. I think we, we have more of a space for understanding what she was trying to do than we did even 10 years ago, 10, certainly 15 years ago. I think we just have a lot more, a lot more language and a lot more appreciation for the sophistication and for the types of influences that were that were impacting how she was thinking and how she was painting. Mm. And yeah, she was she was absolutely a, a remarkable person. And yeah, you know, it's it, I I <laughs> I'm just sorry that she's not around to to see what's happening now because I think it would have really excited her. Yeah, definitely. So you've got a biography of Ithor coming out very soon called The Genius of the Fern Love Gully. Just tell us what made you choose that title for this book and, and tell us a little bit about the book as well. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, the book is coming out within a couple of months from Strange Attractor Press. Uh, I, I love Strange Attractor. They're fantastic. Uh, that title it, it kind of has uh, a, a number of different resonances. It's actually a line from her book, The Living Stones, which was kind of an Earth Mysteries, Earth Mysteries guide to Cornwall, a very early Earth Mysteries guide. And it refers to the, in, in the book, it's, it's from a very, uh, from the introductory section where she's talking about the spirit of the place in Lamorna. So the genius of the fern-loved gully is actually, uh, she's referring to the genus loci of, of Lamorna. However, uh, we also thought that it could refer to her as the genius right. of the fern-loved gully. So it's, it's a, a play there. So yes, the, the book is, it, it focuses really, it's, it's not a narrative biography. It's really more thematically driven. And so it looks at the intersections of, her surrealism, her interest in the Celts and Celticism, and of course, her occultism and her occult background and her occult art. And so it's kind of a weaving together of these three ideas as the primary drivers and influences of her life. And hopefully the idea is to take her life and set it against the contextual background of what was happening in Britain uh, during particularly the mid and late 20th century in terms of not just history, but also occult and esoteric movements. Right, okay. And I suppose with writing this book and completing it and, and when it comes out, will that feel like a... Because you talked at the beginning of our conversation about how you first found out about her about 20 years ago. And does this feel like not the end as so much, but a point in which you've sort of your relationship with this person and through studying their life so in so much detail is it is it a nice way to bring it to sort of a, a fruition it almost oh oh i wish that were so no um, <laughs> you know so uh, a, a friend and fellow eiffel lover steve patterson in cornwall he's he has done some uh some artistic and, and ritual work in at a community level around eiffel Calhoun. In, in the Warna, and he's he's great. And he refers to a phenomenon called the hand of Ithel, which is basically when you when you right. start <laughs> working with her, uh, she she guides you and she she kind of touches you from the great beyond. And 
that is something that that keeps happening. Uh, for one thing, the more I look at her work and her influences, the more utterly complex I realize they are. And so you know, finding myself again reading these you know, historical pieces about the fourth dimension or delving into alchemical texts just to try to figure out what on earth he was doing, that is a process that it has only for me over the years become more and more rich and more and more deep. And as the historical circumstances change and we understand what she's doing and have more, more of an appreciation for what she's doing, I think this is really her time. And so although I am super excited about this contribution, this particular book coming out, uh, there, there will be more things on the back of this uh, that not only I do, but that others do as well. You know, we're, we're finding, as you may or may not be aware, the Tate has just acquired the National Trust collection of her work, which is 5,000 pieces, 5,000 mm. pieces. Wow. That's really where the bulk of her serious esoteric and magical pieces, you know, the stuff that nobody was meant to see, uh, that's where a lot of that actually lives. And so we're now going to have new opportunities for access, new opportunities for exhibition. And so even though you know, I, I've, I've got this piece coming out, I'm sure that there will be revisions and amendments and expansions of it. And uh, there's more access now. And I think her time is really just starting. Mm. So no, no. <laughs> I have other things I'm working on too, but I, I, I don't think, I think this relationship that, that I have with her will be one that is lifelong. Uh, well, of course, that sounds wonderful. I'm really looking forward to your book and the exhibition that's going to be happening at the Tate. I'm just excited to see her work in, in, in person. It's exciting to imagine what that exhibition and her work becoming more well-known will do in terms of these ideas that she had becoming more accepted and, and known. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know uh, what the exhibition... Uh, schedule when when some of that material will come out what it, what it will look like but i i know that, that the time is is right to start working on that and what what that's going to look like and uh, there are so many different stories to tell and so many different ways to look at at her work of course that, uh, she's she's left us all with an, an incredible an incredible story to unpack and I'm just just glad that that we're able to do it now it, it's it's become a lot easier over the 20 years that I've been been working with her almost yeah I guess it is it's 2020 yeah mm. so it's 20 years since I've I uh since I I discovered her for myself and I I think that that uh, yeah it's her time it's it's Eiffel's time mm. well Amy I think that's a great place to end this conversation thank you so much for being on the podcast oh thank you so much for inviting me this has been a lovely conversation today i've really enjoyed it oh, well yeah same here <laughs> um if people want to find out more about you and your work and the book that's coming out how best do they do that well my website is uh it's www.amyhale.me that's my own personal website 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at AmyHale93. Uh, the publisher for the Genius of From Love Gully is Strange Attractor. So strangeattractor.co.uk will have news on that. It's also being distributed by MIT Press, and so MIT Press will have information on that as well. And look out for that in the next couple of months. Brilliant. Well, I definitely will. Great. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Amy. Given the subject matter, I think this episode is an interesting follow-up to my conversation with Kate Laity about Leonora Carrington last year. Although there are similarities between them, it's clear that there are also plenty of differences when it comes to their working processes and output, and between Ithel Colquhoun and other surrealists in general. It's a little unsurprising to hear that a lot of surrealist artists were actively interested in esoteric subjects, but in the main, use those ideas thematically in their work, whereas Ithel was absolutely a practising occultist, whose art was an integral part of that. It'll be interesting to see how the tape present the archive of her work that they purchased last year, and how they include that aspect of her life in any exhibitions they have. I think it'd be a real shame if they don't give the weirder aspects of her life the attention they deserve, especially her ideas and work with colour and shape, which are fundamental concepts in art. Amy was the perfect person to talk to. I'm really looking forward to getting Genius of the Fern Love Gully when it comes out. Until then, I really recommend her essay, The Magical Life of Ithel Colquhoun, included in the book Pathways in Modern Western Magic, which has lots of other great essays on weird subjects and would look great on your bookshelf, or to put on your coffee table to freak people out with. Anywho, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcatcher, as it all helps. To contact Sphere HQ, email someothersphere at gmail.com and the podcast Twitter account is at spherical underscore pod. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.